Hello and welcome to the In Publishing podcast. Our guest this time is Luke Nichols, content director of the leading sustainability information brand Edie, which includes the flagship website Edie.net, a portfolio of events led by Net Zero Live, and three dedicated communities of sustainability and energy business leaders. We talk to Luke about how the role of content director forms a vital bridge between the content and marketing sides of the brand. A vital bridge between content and sales and marketing and events teams. Um, It's really important that there is someone that can act as a go-between when needed um, from the content, which obviously what brings in most of the people into the funnel on ED onto our website and ensure that they're kind of there's a connection between all of that and the way that it's marketed or the way that any of that content could be sold. Luke provided some interesting insights, including how ED is a brand in the right place at the right time. As you can imagine, that's a growing sector and the climate emergency has, has finally been getting the mainstream media and political and, and societal attention it deserves. And that means that businesses are more focused on what they can do to tackle it, which in turn means that ED is being increasingly turned to by businesses and industries for, for information and advice on, on how to do that. How it got its name from a tea lady. We were founded over 20 years ago now, 22 years ago, I think. So pre-Google as an online platform by a group of journalists here. And they were looking for a name for this environmental journal. And uh, the tea lady who worked here at the publishing house then was called Edie. And how giving colleagues from a different department a lift to work can give you a better appreciation of your business. I used to give people lifts to work when I was just starting out there at William Reed. Had a little P-Reg Volkswagen Polo, which used to fill up with four William Reed employees every morning, which did look like something out of Only Fools and Horses, I must admit. Those four people all worked in the digital marketing department at William Reed. So every morning in those drives to work, I would listen to and absorb some really fascinating discussions about what actually makes really compelling and, and sticky digital content. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Advantage CS, a leading global provider of subscription and membership management software. Capabilities include marketing, sales, payments, and customer relationship software for publishers, membership associations, and information providers. For more information, go to advantagecs.com. Luke Nichols is the award-winning content director of ED.net, the UK's leading sustainability information brand. Luke, welcome to the In Publishing podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So you studied sports journalism at the University of Brighton, and I believe you got a first-class degree. Can you tell us how you got from there to your current role at ED? Yeah, uh, that's correct. Uh, well, well researched on my LinkedIn profile, I'd imagine. Um, uh, I won't give you my entire life story, I suppose, but I, I guess going back a stage further from, from that even, um, I grew up with a real love for, for sports, particularly football, uh, which I played in a, at an okay level. Uh, went to a sports college. Um, guess I was one of those typical teenagers who dreamed of being a professional footballer. Um, but I also loved to write. I had a, a natural affinity for it and seemed to be better at expressing myself in, in words on paper than I did in conversations with, uh, with people. Um, and I was, and I think I always have been, quite uh, an introverted person. I guess growing up, writing became something of a sort of safe space for me, if you like, which I know sounds a bit pathetic, but often it is an insecurity or a, an idiosyncrasy like that, which can uh, spark a particular passion or a skill. Um, 
And maybe there are other journalists and publishers out there whose love of writing comes from a similar place. But anyway, sorry, this is becoming a bit of a life story already. But uh, yeah, at university, I was able to fuse those two passions, essentially, of, of sports and writing uh, with the sports journalism course, which I really enjoyed. Uh, combined it with an NCTJ course on the side, which gave me, I guess, more of a, a proper grounding in some of those core aspects of journalism. So things like shorthand, media law. Uh, and then uh, I graduated in 2011. Uh, and being completely honest at that point, um, due to personal circumstances, I, I needed a job at that point in my life rather than just wanting a job. Um, and jobs in sport journalism are, as you can imagine, pretty hard to come by. So uh, I applied for any and every available position in journalism at that point across B2B and B2C titles. And and very luckily, the first interview I had was for a reporter at uh, William Reed Business Media, uh, B2B publishing house in, in West Sussex, fairly local to me. And I know you've had their chief digital officer, John Barnes, on a, on a recent podcast episode. Um, and I, I joined a title there called Big Hospitality, which was the online arm of Restaurant Magazine. Uh, and looking back at those those three or four years that I worked there, they were really invaluable to me, I think. William Reed's a very well-managed and structured organization and it's investing in the right places to achieve significant growth, namely sort of digital and, uh, and events. And I worked under a fantastic editor, a lady called Emma Eversham, who really gave me that grounding I needed in some of the core aspects of, of reporting. And I worked alongside a, an absolutely brilliant multimedia journalist who really transformed our video content and podcasts. And he taught me a great deal about multimedia journalism. He now works at the BBC. Um, and the third thing, actually, the last thing I'd say that really helped me to shape my direction as a journalist was one of those very random things in life, which seems insignificant at the time, but I think on reflection has been really important to me, which is I used to give people lifts to work when I was just starting out there at William Reed um, as a way of covering petrol money. Um, had a little P-Reg Volkswagen Polo, which uh, used to fill up with four William Reed employees every morning, which did look like something out of Only Fools and Horses, I must admit, especially as <laughs> um, one of those people in the back was about six foot six from what I remember. Um, but the point I was going to make is that those four people all worked in the digital marketing department at William Reed. So every morning in those drives to work, I would listen to and absorb some really fascinating discussions about what actually makes really compelling and, and sticky digital content and the importance of SEO and uh, also the importance of the link between content and marketing teams. So there was some great discussion and debates had um, in those drives to and from work. Um, a lot of those conversations really stuck with me. Um, anyway, sorry, you're probably pleased to hear I'm reaching the end of this live story. <laughs> um, but after four years there at Big Hospitality, um, I then moved on and joined Edie here, worked under a content editor, uh, con sorry, content director for three years. Uh, uh, Will Parsons, Will then moved on and I was fortunate enough to move on to the position I'm in now. Great. So there's probably some lessons there for aspiring journalists about um, giving colleagues lifts to work when such a thing <laughs> is possible true. again. Yeah, yes. very much. So can you explain what ED is all about and um, how did it get its name? I think, I believe there's an interesting story behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an interesting story or there's a more boring sort of technical story. I'll give you both. Um, uh, but just to give you the official descriptor, first of all, of, of ED um, from the sort of about us section of, of our website, because I'm sad enough to remember it off the top of my head. Um, we're an industry leading purpose driven uh, business media brand that empowers sustainability energy and environment professionals of all levels to make business more sustainable uh, through award-winning content and events. So our core audience is essentially the people who work within businesses who hold some level of responsibility for that organization's sustainability or energy or climate strategy. As you can imagine, that's a growing sector. Um, the climate emergency has, has finally been getting the mainstream 
media and political and, and societal attention it deserves to, to an extent. Um, and that means that businesses are more focused on what they can do to tackle it, which in turn means that ED is being increasingly turned to by businesses and industries for, for information and advice on, on how to do that. Um, as for our name, uh, we I'll give you the more boring version for no I'll give you the more exciting version first, which is uh, we were named we were founded uh, over twenty years ago now twenty two years ago I think um, so pre Google um, as an online uh, as a digital sort of uh, platform um, by a group of journalists here this publishing house Fabisham House um, and they were looking for a name for this environmental um, sort of journal and uh, the tea lady who worked here at the publishing house then was called Edie. Um, Famed for, from what I heard, serving uh, toffees, which were a combination of teas and coffees, which just used to <laughs> used to never know what you were going to get from what I've heard. Um, and yeah, so it's nicely sort of humbly got a, got a, got a name there from a tea lady. Um, the more boring version is Environmental Data Interactive Exchange, which I'm not sure when that came came about, but um, as you can imagine, I've stuck with the tea lady version. Yes, did they did they try to fit that acronym into, oh, into the tea lady's did. name? It's right. one of those acronyms that doesn't make any sense when you read it back, but sounds very technical. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, can you tell me what are your main responsibilities as a content director? And I know you used to be editor. So, how does that role differ to the editor role you held previously? Hmm. Um, yeah. So, I guess working back from that question, uh, so becoming content director essentially took me away from. Uh, the day-to-day churn of the news and the roundups and the newsletters and I don't mean to downplay um, that work by the way by referring to it as the churn of course it's integral to the success of any brand in this space but just mean to say that that was what was filling most of my days previously but instead um, as I moved up to content director my role became to oversee the news desk which included past tense a a content editor a senior reporter uh, and an insight editor who covered our more technical reports and guides Um, but that latter role is one that we've unfortunately more recently had to make redundant as a result of the, the pandemic and its impacts for us um so now i oversee a, a too strong editorial team of a content editor and senior reporter um and beyond that i'm really i guess i, I guess the sort of the strategy setter for the brand um so i have developed and um continue to ensure that we kind of work to, around a, a content plan it's a centrally held document which includes all of our kind of sponsored and sponsorable content and events throughout the year and is continuously updated um i'm responsible for developing coming up with and identifying gaps um, around new formats and approaches and in our event side as well so new event session type speaker ideas and i'm sure we'll come on to events and digital events shortly um and the final thing i'd say i suppose comes with my role is being a, a vital bridge between content and sales and marketing and events teams um it's really important that there is someone that can act as a go-between when needed from um from the content which obviously what brings in most of the people into the funnel on ed onto our website and ensure that they're kind of there's a connection between all of that and the way that it's marketed or the way that any of that content could be sold um uh, and I'm, again, that's probably something we'll come back to in terms of the relationship with other departments, particularly sales, which is something that we focused on a lot and has been integral, I think, to the success of success of our brand. Well, maybe my next question touches on that, which is um, I, I interviewed you for the In Publishing magazine a couple of years ago, mm. and then you didn't rule out the possibility of introducing a paywall. But um, 
on your site, your content is still free to subscribers. So what is the commercial model for ED and how does content drive that? Yeah, I, I remember that conversation a couple of years ago and I, I knew this topic would, would come back up. So I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Um, so that the, the current model we're operating with um, is still the same, I guess, when, when you and I last spoke. And it's that of the traditional sponsorship and, and advertising model for our content and events. And um, over the past few years, we've really refined that model. Um, it's brought us great success. I think ED is a great example, actually, of how the content sponsorship model can work for a B2B brand without diluting that content or or alienate the alienating the audience or the advertisers. Um, going off our, our last four years worth of figures, I won't give specific um, numbers here, but in 2019, we saw a, a 23% increase in sponsored content revenue from 2018. And and that was 116% up from 2017. Um, and I can come back to maybe that particular 116% growth later on as well, because um, that was a real turning point for us. But um, on the digital content side, the sponsorship revolves primarily around reports and guides, um, whereby the sport sponsor might help us out with the researching of a particular technical topic um, and provide a, a written viewpoint for inclusion within the downloadable document. And also webinars and masterclasses, again, basic formula sponsor puts forward a speaker to present or, or to join a group discussion still very much editorially led though i should say and editorially chaired um and we offer other sponsorable assets like case studies quarterly audience surveys practical handbooks um so that's all lead gen for the sponsors in that they they get the data from the downloaders um but also last year we managed to break the um uh, the glass ceiling of the sponsorship barrier on 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 podcasts which as I can hear um, in publishing has uh, been able to do as well. Um, and that's obviously about expanding brand awareness for advertisers. So it's reliant on quite a bit of trust in the brand, um, trust that we can reach a sizable audience and the right audience for them. So it's good that we've been able to to do that and it's offered up a, a new revenue stream for us. Um, so yeah, I realize I'm skirting a bit about around the sort of crux of your question because yes, our our plan has always been, and to some extent it still is, to move from this free sponsorship made uh, based model to a paid membership based model um one of ed's sister titles at faversham house utility week uh, has been able to make the switch very successfully to a, a corporate license model um their pricing is now tiered um and they've encountered from what i've heard very little resistance to the um substantial price increases and i believe they've moved their subscription revenues to something like a third of their brand portfolio and rising so Edie would like to follow suit, not not necessarily the corporate license model, but to a membership-based model, certainly. Being honest, um, COVID is one of those things that has stopped us in our tracks slightly with this work um, for a number of reasons, um, which I won't go into in, in terms of massive depth, but I guess two primary reasons. One would be that um, it's a bit difficult right at the moment, and it has been over the past few months, to to, to know when and how we approach this conversation with our audience about uh, paying for content when so many of them have been on on furlough, their businesses have been impacted quite hard by the pandemic. Um, so I'd be interested if anyone's listening in any ideas around that. If anyone's been working through paid approaches, um, and, and secondly and most importantly, though the the pandemic has obviously had a significant impact on on Faversham House, our publisher, and, and its brands, including ED, which has meant we've had to consolidate quite a bit. I've referenced a few redundancies earlier, um, and that's meant we've just had to hold on a little while longer before we can regroup and, and dedicated the resource dedicated resources required to to a membership model so um watch this space and, and hopefully the next time we speak um i'll be reflecting on on that transition to a to a membership based b2b brand 
Absolutely. And and we'll come back to the impact of the pandemic in, in a moment. But first, I want to ask about you personally. You were named PPA Publishing Innovator of the Year in 2018. And the year before that, you were named New Editor of the Year. How would you characterize your approach to publishing? Hmm. Um, yeah, that, I was, was named those two things. It's great to be, have been recognized in that way. And just to continue that list of accolades with a few more recent ones, these aren't personal, by the way. Um, but I'm very proud to say that Edie was was named the brand of the year in the recent AOP awards um, in the B2B category. And, and my very small now but mighty content team were named the editorial team of the year as well, which I was delighted about after such a difficult year. Um, but yeah, in terms of my own personal approach, there's lots of directions I could I could go with this, I guess, but I'll give you a few key characteristics or principles that I guess I've personally found really important to mine and my team's success. The first is around team and the way you manage your team and the culture that you build, especially if you've got a small team. Well, in fact, actually, regardless of the team size, just the the culture that you have. Um, a couple of insights perhaps I could give that maybe explain the way that I've tried to ensure there's a, a positive culture. One is around this concept of, of radical candor. Um, some listeners may have come across this before. It was introduced to us by um, one of our non-executive directors at, at Faversham House, Phil Ives. Um, he does management training and coaching, and he taught us about this thing of radical candor, which is basically it's just about honest and open feedback, two-way. So from manager to employee and 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 from employee upwards to manager as well. Um, that's to say that we have spent a great deal of time on ED and indeed across Faversham House trying to build a culture whereby we give the people, give our sort of people the freedom and the courage to to give open feedback across the office or to others, I suppose, virtually now, um, or disagree perhaps with a point being made by someone, even if an authority during a team meeting. Um, uh, this kind of openness, as long as we're all coming from the right place and we're all bought into the um, the overarching strategy, which is another point I'll come on to in a moment, um, then this like, concept of radical candor, which is, by the way, that's a phrase we use, um, which sometimes makes it a bit easier. So for example, if in my team, I, and by the way, this isn't actually a direct reference to anyone, but if I was to have someone that had perhaps taken an approach that wasn't quite right or could have been improved, um, uh, then I might be able to say, look, a bit of radical candor for you. Um, I've noticed this and I think this could, you know, this could be how it's improved about the way that you do this um, and vice versa. And it's, I guess that's in itself, the concept has acted as a bit of a, uh, a social buffer and it's made it a lot easier. Sorry, I've dwelled on that point, but I thought it was really important. Um, no, really, really interesting. Uh, the other thing off the back of this point on team is um, a book I'd recommend. I don't know if this is allowed, but uh, one book I'd, I'd recommend that in terms of building a culture is um, a book from Patty McCord. Um, it's on Netflix, about Netflix, sorry. It's, um, uh, it's called Powerful, uh, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. And one key thing that sticks with me from that book is um, this point that is made that they built this culture in Netflix that if you stop any employee at any level of the company in a in a break room or an elevator, um, you ask them what the sort of five most important important things uh, that the company is working on right now for the next six months. That person should be able to tell you rapid fire one two three four five. Ideally, using the same words that you've used when you've communicated this to the staff, um, and if they're really good and in the same order. Um, 
And if they can't do that, then the heartbeat across the business or in the brand is not strong enough. So I realized that comparing Netflix to a much smaller brand like Edie is, is perhaps strange, but um, just that culture of ensuring everyone across the brand, whether you're a reporter, up to an editor, anyone else working in events, sales, marketing, if everyone is bought into the overarching strategy and the goals of the brand, then a lot of kind of barriers and bridges um, can be repaired and sort of strengthened. Um, one final thing on this, sorry, I'm very quite passionate as you can tell about this point on yes, management. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's what, just what, one little small tip that I kind of have picked up and it's more recently I've done this because we've been working remote. Um, obviously it can be harder to, to manage teams and individuals on a remote basis. But one small thing I've done recently was this, came across this thing called the 16 personalities test. Um, it essentially is one of those tests. It is a personality test as you may have heard of think, feel, no test is another one. Um, and this is a free test you can do online. You just literally would Google 16 personalities and it gives you a breakdown of your, your natural tendencies, the ways you like to work. Um, it compares you to celebrities and famous people that have, have got similar um, personality types. And it tells you what makes good relationships work for you and, and um, how best to get the most out of, out of yourself. Um, and I found this really useful um, from a team management perspective. I asked my team to take it. It's since been actually taken right across the company. Uh, it's a bit of fun, uh, first of all. But secondly, it gives you just something, again, to anchor back to for those sometimes awkward management conversations. So if someone has taken a test, they see the results and, you know, there's certain things that they find out or they know about themselves to be true. Um, it's often a nice thing to be able to refer back to that and, and joke about those kind of things because everyone has little things that need to be focused on when they're being managed. Um, and yeah, I've just found that this, this, this 16 personalities test quite a nice way of um, ensuring that all management is more bespoke to the individual. Um, sorry, that was only my first point of a few. Um, <laughs> the only other ones I would just, I'll just give you the, the top line. Yes, of them. The, yeah. One was to know your audience, especially your core audience um, and everything you should do should really start with them. Um, and the other was to, to bridge gaps, as I, I referenced this earlier, those gaps that might exist between divisions in a, in an organization. So between content and sales and events and marketing, um, especially sales, um, it's not the dark side as it's often referred to in the, by journalists. Um, you do need to understand them and, and they need to understand you. Um, but on ED, that turning point from 2017 to 2018 when we saw a hundred percent increase in sponsored content revenue um the key aspect of that was i think the restructuring which allowed us to have this kind of content director i'm not, not saying this was directly because of me per se but by just simply having this role whereby i was a bit more of a go-between um, from content and sales so sales didn't just come over and tell us that something had been sold there was a conversation that was had about the thing that could be sold, about who the, who the supplier or sponsor is and how we can make it work for them and the audience. And it just allowed us to ensure that there's an open and ongoing conversation between salesperson and journalist, which always does come back to that earlier point of knowing your core audience, because any bit of sponsored content that we sell has only been sold at the point at which I have agreed that it would work for our core audience. Um, and that has been fundamental, I think, to, to the success of, of, of the brand. I'll stop there. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of our listeners will be really interested to hear hear that point about um, making the link between sales and content more um, more integral. Mm. Um, but it sounds like you're doing it with, with integrity as well. So mm. um, you've just held um, 
one of your main annual events, Net Zero Live. And um, obviously this year it had to be a virtual event because of the pandemic. How did you adapt that and what was that experience like? Hmm. Um, yeah, well, that's right. We have just held it. And in fact, I'm not sure when this is, episode is exactly going out, but the event took place this week. Um, and so I'm speaking to you actually from the very studio in our office that I've been sat in all week um, broadcasting here on my own which has been very eerie and strange used to sort of being on a stage and getting feedback from people so that in itself has been one massive um difference from live events um but uh, so typically net zero live um it was traditionally called sustainability live then it became ed live um we called it net zero live this year it was due to be held at the nec in birmingham as it always has been and um, we tend to get three thousand plus people across the doors across three days um that was due to take place in May, but obviously we had to suspend it and, and move it to November. Um, we were still hoping for it to be a live event, but in the summer we made the call for it to go virtual. Um, and I must say, it's been a fantastic success. Um, I'm very happy with how it's gone. I'm glad that I'm sat here. I, was, I knew we had this kind of chat at the end of this week after the event, and I was hoping I could report back to you that um, it's been a great kind of first virtual mega event experience for us. And it and it has. Um we switched as much as of the content as we could online. Same for our exhibitors. Um, so there was a kind of an expo area as well. Um, although if anyone has any tips on how to engage audience members with exhibitors at an online event, then I'd be open to hearing those because that was a bit of a struggle. Um, uh, but beyond that, you know, this became, I guess, my baby for the past few months. Um, I spent a great deal of time uh, remapping the content because we couldn't translate it all across to a virtual format. Um, and rejigging formats and trying out new things. So we tried out things like um, virtual open roundtable discussions where we had a group of people on a kind of Zoom call style chat and then we had the audience sat around around that, tuning in and watching this conversation take place and and contributing via session chat. Um, That was probably one of my standout things as a a new format that actually virtual event experience uh, opened up to us that we didn't have kind of before. Um, so great engagement, high audience numbers, higher audience numbers, actually, in fact, than if it was a live event um, and good content, if I do say so myself, even better than live, in fact, um, in, in many respects. Um, so, yeah, very pleased with how that went. And drawing on that experience, um, what, what would be your key do's and don'ts for others um, about to hold a virtual event? Hmm. Oh, God, there are so many. Um, I suppose I would caveat everything I'm about to say, though, by stressing. Uh, yeah, I'm not an events professional or expert. I guess, I guess though that 2020 has given me a bit of a crash course in virtual events platforms and content. Um, but yeah, sorry, you asked about do's and don'ts. Starting with the the do's, I think um, one is is be crystal clear on exactly what you would like each aspect of your event to look like and feel like for your audience. I.e., don't just do what we did. Being completely honest, uh, the first time around, which is to just say. Oh, we've got an afternoon there. Let's just do some workshops in that afternoon uh, without actually then sitting down and working out what that looks like, um, how the workshop will run, how it will be chaired, what the content outputs will look like. Because when it's virtual, the chain of uh, events, so to speak, in terms of the way things can happen on the days is so intricate and it needs to be really planned and scoped well in advance. Um, that was another point I would I would say actually about getting the, the content shape and the event registration page live as far in advance as you can again that was something that we've learned i mean net zero live had about a six week window um from complete scratch nothing on a website to built and registration page open um 
which I think had we done it all again, we'd probably at least double that. Um, conduct as much rehearsals and, and technical prep uh, calls that you can, as you can. Um, that relates to an earlier point again of the further ahead you are, the more of those rehearsals you can conduct, but you do tend to pick up a lot of those uh, little teething issues, whether it's someone who's, you know, got people at their door constantly as a speaker or has got a strange backdrop that needs sorting or just a terrible connection. Um, rehearsals for us helped to smooth it out so that the live event was actually then looked really slick. Um, uh, last couple I can think of one is uh, great chairs and facilitators, like making sure you have them um, and, and those that are relatively tech savvy, actually. Um, so we had a lot of thing, uh, different session types, which required, you know, chairing. We actually took most of the chairing in house. I did some, and my our content editor Matt did some as well. But um, for any other events where you require more chairs, I would definitely recommend just ensuring they fully understand how to work the platform because things can go wrong, and and having a good chair that's ready for things to go wrong is um, can be key. Um, and that was probably the last point in terms of the do's was do be prepared for things to go wrong. Um, they did with Net Zero Live, only a couple of very small things. Um, but just you are more open, obviously, because you're reliant on other people and other people's connections and backdrops and, and, and such. So um, be ready for that um, and just accept that there's not going to be an entirely perfectly delivered event if it's a, you know, if it's a long event over a few days. Um, and the audience are usually fine about it. Again, if you've got a chair that, that sort of rolls with the punches. Um, in terms of the don'ts, I think, one key one is just don't transition a live event just to a virtual and just replicate all of the formats across i think treat it as an opportunity to to innovate and to do something different so a panel discussion could become a wider group conversation as i've just referenced the zoom style chat or user interaction can be enhanced through polls chat um things like that and, and speed networking as well um and um, don't just see it as a one-off situation. Uh, I think we don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic, but um, you never know. I think it's virtual events could continue well into 2021. And also, actually, importantly, your audience might prefer the virtual experience to a live event, um, which probably leads to my last point, which is a specific one. But remember to survey your audience about this straight after the virtual event. We're just doing this now for Net Zero Live and explicitly ask them in the survey do you prefer this to a live equivalent or not uh, and why because everyone will be well aware there's a lot of money that can be saved in virtual events compared with live formats um and also carbon in terms of travel and things which i would have to fly the flag for given that that's in ed's nature um yeah so there's a few tips absolutely which brings me on to my next question which is in the post-COVID world, what aspects of virtual events do you think will carry over and what might Net Zero Live 2022 look like? Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know what 2022 is going to look like, let alone the next couple of months. Um, but I, I, I referenced John Barnes earlier from uh, William Reed Business Media, um, listened to his podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, and I certainly agree with the point he made back then about some of these virtual formats sticking going forward. I don't think they're going to go away entirely. Um, there'll always be a place for live events, I'm sure. And in my personal opinion, you can't quite beat that sort of face-to-face -face interaction and, and networking. Um, but going forward and, and coming out of COVID, I think we're going to see a real rise in hybrid events. So that mix of face-to-face -face and virtual aspects, um, which will allow brands a much broader, more global, and, and therefore, um, I guess, a, yeah, a more global audience that allows you to offer a much more 
bespoke set of ticket types and tiers. Um, and also to steal another point that I recall John making in that podcast chat, I think sorry, that's the last time I'll, I'll reference him, but I think uh, we'll see a rise in more elongated events. So festivals and the like, where you can have that sort of mix of face-to-face and virtual events and sessions spread throughout a month. So in terms of what that means for us specifically, I'm, I'm not going to give too much away in terms of what we're doing for Net Zero Live next year and our other events in years to come. But perhaps your answer lies in there somewhere in something I've just referenced around perhaps hybrid, perhaps um, more elongated festival, that kind of thing. Um, certainly that's what we're going to be looking at. And and one key um, part of Net Zero Live is the Mission Possible campaign, which has become an important part of what you do um, at ED. Can you talk us through that concept and what impact that's had? Yeah, so Mission Possible. So in uh, back in, where are we now, 2020, so back in 2017, um, three years ago, ED was, we were sort of lacking momentum, I think. Um, the brand had developed a number of new formats, but um, that left us, and our content and our audience spread quite thinly. Um, equally across all of those two formats, we were feeling a bit of a sort of general lack of brand purpose, um, which I thought was crazy when you think about what we're writing about in sustainability and climate change. So from this sort of challenge there, we identified an opportunity, I guess, and that was one to take ED from being a traditional B2B outlet, um, I say traditional, but an outlet that simply sort of informs and reflects what's going on in an industry to actually becoming a, a brand that unites and empowers our audience and actually joins them on the journey. So Mission Possible is what what's, that's all about. We developed it in 2018 and it's essentially a, a content-led campaign which encourages all organizations to ramp up their efforts and to take new actions uh, across all areas of sustainability. Um, so we came up with a you know, worked with a marketing team to develop uh, and spent a bit of money on it on a bold video campaign which sort of officially launched it um, and that looked really nice suddenly ed seemed punchy and we kind of um seemed a bit more kind of standing for the future um we developed a really big flagship report with, with some really high level contributors uh, and mission possible became the theme of of ed live our exhibition that year but the thing that made this a, a real campaign i guess um was a pledge wall um and this is a a virtual wall that we developed and it was actually a, we did reincarnate it live at some of our exhibitions which by the way was a great really great way of getting people to our stand um and this this virtual pledge wall though was essentially a, a place on a microsite that we built for mission possible whereby organizations of all sizes and sectors across the world could come on and post new commitments and pledges to take them a step closer to being more sustainable and and tackling the climate emergency. Um, This was, as I say, this was one of the things that I think looking back has been a real turning point for the brand and has led to some of the award wins and some of the great traffic growth. We had over 200 pledges, I think, now on the wall we've got um, from the likes of, you know, from massive organizations. I won't reference any individual companies, but most of the largest organizations across numerous sectors have, have made pledges new commitments these are on this mission possible wall and it was this that allowed us to secure a partnership with the government um for their green gb week uh, in 2019 this was their week of um sort of action and awareness raising of um uh, climate change and what individuals and businesses can do to help tackle it um so the government was encouraging businesses in their networks to join ed's campaign by making mission possible pledges and so this massively increased brand awareness it unlocked greater 
access to ministers, by the way. Um, and in terms of the results of all of this, because it's still ongoing, but that year alone in 2018, um, it directly contributed to a 10% uplift in brand revenue through sponsorship of, of Mission Possible related content. Uh, and we saw a double digit growth in website traffic um, directly attributable to Mission Possible related roundups, news, interviews, and, and pledges and the like. So, yeah, um, lesson learned from me there was certainly if you're working in a brand where you feel like, kind of what is the point of what we do beyond just being an outlet for our audience then have a think about what your audience is trying to achieve and think about whether a campaign can be developed around that um and if a campaign can be developed around it then you know what's the opportunity for you from a content and sales perspective to do that when i last spoke to you you um had quite recently set up two membership clubs the Sustainability Leaders Club and the Energy Leaders Club. Can you tell us a bit more about setting these up and sort of what the thinking behind those membership clubs uh, was and any advice that you would give to others thinking of setting up something similar? Mm. Yeah, so the the thinking all comes back to a a point which um, I know has been made by several of your podcast guests in the past, which is if you want to grow your brand, um, then start with your core audience and build out from there. So our core audience on ED are in-house sustainability managers and energy managers. Um, so we launched the Sustainability Leaders Club in 2016 and the Energy Leaders Club a couple of years later. Um, we centered them on, on, on those core audience groups. Uh, they're free to join and be a part of if you are you know, a sustainability or an energy manager. And they're closed to anyone who's not an energy or sustainability lead. So closed to sponsors and advertisers. Um, but the revenue model, by the way, is that the whole group can be sponsored by a select few um, sponsors who then do get access to the group um, and can market products and services to them in a very light touch way. Um, once an energy or sustainability manager is, is joined and been approved, um, then they're part of this exclusive network of people in similar roles. And so we run then a, a year-round series of networking events and briefings for these two groups. Um, we've now got 500-plus sustainability uh, club members and 300-plus and energy club members, both of which, um, both in, in both groups, most of those members represent unique organizations as well. So um, this renew, renewed focus for us on those core audience segments has really been a, has been a key driver of our growth over the past few years. Um, in fact, I'd probably go as far to say as if we didn't have these clubs in place, then the brand wouldn't have been able to grow in the way it has. And some of our biggest events like Net Zero Live, um, the Sustainability Leaders Forum, another big conference that we hold and our awards, they wouldn't be the successes they now are. Um, I realize this is basic stuff for anyone out there who's already done it, I suppose. But um, what we did, uh, for what it's worth, is that we we started by taking a sample of our best and most important core audience members um, to really find out and understand what they wanted from us. This helps, by the way, when you're also looking at a membership um, strategy. So we did a similar thing for that as well. Um, we made sure everyone across the ED brand understood that as well, by the way, understood what was important to our audience um, across the editorial events and sales, really important. Um, uh, and the chances are that if you can meet those primary wants and needs of your core audience, um, then you will be meeting the, those needs of the entire market that you want to grow into. And then you get that snowball effect. So the club networks grow and grow. You build a content plan, plan around those wants and needs. Download numbers go up. Webinar registrants go up. 
and you get a better quality of speaker and sessions at your events. Um, and then you start selling these things to vendors and that's when you turn the key on this and um, you can increase the cost on that because you know that, uh, or the vendor knows that they are connecting with the exact group that they're trying to um, ultimately sell their product or service into. So it's a really high value opportunity. Um, and it allows you to spot opportunities. Last thing I'll just say on that, you know, the Mission Possible campaign uh, wouldn't have been developed in the way it was if it weren't for our Sustainability Leaders Club members who pledged, for example. Um, and if we didn't have our Energy Leaders Club, um, energy managers are in our audience. They're the audience segment that are the hardest to engage um, for many reasons. Um, and uh, But if we didn't have this Energy Leaders Club, then we we wouldn't have been able to get so many energy managers engaged with the brand and coming to our events now. Um, so yeah, it's, I guess if it came back to one sort of buzzword or phrase, it would be sort of growth through engagement with the core audience. You've been at ED now since 2014. What are your goals for the brand over the next two to three years? Um, so well, I'm aware that some rival brands, I suppose, may be listening to this podcast, so I won't reveal all of our ambitions, but, um, we do have some really big ones. Um, we always do aim high, I guess it's another key thing that's been important for our growth as a brand has been to set really high targets and then work our way towards them um next year it's the cop 26 climate talks in our world on ed this is a big climate change conference happening um uh, next year it's being held in the uk um in glasgow so that offers a massive content and event opportunity for us so much of our plans are going to be built around where ed sits with that kind of global conversation and how we can kind of get our foot in the door um reference back to our um partnership we've got with government that will provide really great leverage i think um and then the membership offering of course um probably would have guessed that but that's one thing that's going to happen hopefully uh soon um and and probably um even based on everything i've just been talking about it will probably make most sense to grow that membership offering around our clubs so that's where we're going to start um i.e we could start as a minimum charging uh, club members to be members um, because they get such a high value um, content out of being a member. Um, lastly, I guess a wish, I suppose, um, would be that I would like, of course, Faversham House, our publisher, to, to, to redouble down on the ED brand. Um, I think there's a massive growth opportunity here. Um, I think I referenced the figures earlier, but that turning point we saw from 2018 19, you know, we saw a 80%, just under 80% increase in all users in, in one year um which i'd just never seen or heard of before really it was just so high we almost doubled our audience in the space of 12 months and that was right off the back of blue planet 2 on the tv um, all of the climate change programs that came out suddenly this has hit the mainstream and and good business is often about seizing the opportunity um and i think we're showing at the moment that ed really does represent an opportunity for growth at, at what is a crucial time for the world of publishing um yeah, anyway, so that's that's probably my hopes and, and wants for the, the coming years. Yeah, so very much in the right place at the right time, but, but mm. also making the most of that. You are clearly passionate about ED, but uh, the final question that we always ask our guests is, outside of work, what do you do to relax? <laughs> oh, God, I always hate this type of question because I feel like uh, I should be saying something that really wows and inspires. Um but the truth is, I suppose, that outside of work, I live a pretty uh, relaxed life down in my in my bungalow in West Sussex with my two cats. Um, yeah, hello to Leo and Alfie if you're listening. Um, but I, I 
I go to the gym a lot. That's one thing. I, so I've spent the last weekend actually um, building my own gym just out of frustration that I can't go to the gym because I do think that's really important for obviously physical but also mental health. So um, just built a bit of a mini gym in my garage. Um, I love eating out, but again, I can't do much of that at the moment. Um, and I do enjoy a, a, a good Netflix or a TV drama or, or documentary, which I'm sure like everyone else, you can do a lot of at the moment and I'm doing a hell of a lot more of that as well. Um, so particular recommendations would probably be uh, The Undoing. That's what that's out at the moment. That's a really great show on, on Sky Atlantic. Uh, the Last Dance, really good documentary, I thought, on, on, uh, on Netflix um, about the Chicago Bulls um, team and actually really good from a team management perspective as well. And, uh, and Normal People I liked as well, um, which I think is a, perhaps a rather apt description of myself based on the answer I've just given. Um, anyway, there we are. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm always looking for good Netflix recommendations. Um, Luke Nichols, thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast. Thank you. We would like to thank Advantage CS again for sponsoring this podcast. Advantage CS has been developing subscription management solutions for the information industry since 1979. The comprehensive functionality, adaptability and scalability of its software helps leading publishers around the world manage their businesses more effectively. Find out more at AdvantageCS.com Thank you to Luke for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast. If you want to find out more about ED, visit ed.net. To listen to more episodes of this podcast, go to inpublishing.co.uk slash podcasts. Thank you for listening and please join us next time on the In Publishing Podcast.